is your death sentence for this week. Um, it's another just me one. Eden and Langdon, they're, they're, they're going to do their own thing. You'll see it soon. But I'm here with someone who I've known about and admired for a long time. Um, Matt McManus is a professor at the University of... Remind me. Oh, uh, University of Michigan. Uh, I'm a lecturer in the Department of Political Science. Exactly. Uh, You were at University of Calgary, right? Uh, Yep. No, I taught there for, I guess, about a year uh, between 2021 and 2022. Uh, All online, though. Oh, cool. I used to live there. We didn't cross over. I left before uh, 21, but um, go go Hitman, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, no, UC was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, the students there were especially great. Hmm. Yeah, I knew I kind of hung around. Oh, that sounds gross. I hung around at college, um, but um, no, I, I knew a lot of UFC students and worked with them on on stuff while I was uh, during my time in Calgary. Um, but yeah, it's an awesome place. Um, so I know you as well a bunch, a whole bunch of different things. I, I'm, I'm totally parasocial for you, Matt. I'm sorry. You, you got to get no a stalker. I, I hope <laughs> um, most of them are good. So that's all I can say uh, about that. Yeah, I, the, the bushes outside your apartment are really comfy. No fawns oh, in them. Oh, well, I'm yeah. so glad to hear that. Um, so do the plastic pills uh, YouTube show and podcast. You also on um, Academic Edge Lords podcast, which I've been enjoying, um, and in a ton of different publications, a lot in Jacobin lately. Yep. You've been in some of the absolute best writing on the conservative movement and the far right that's happening anywhere right now. Like really top quality stuff. Thanks. Uh, you've also written a billion books, um, far more than I can remember. Um, postmodern conservatism being a, a, a big one that's going to come up today alongside uh, the newest one. Uh, there was uh, one on Nietzsche, and well, it was a collection of essays on Nietzsche, which is really good. And uh, I, I haven't actually read it myself, but you've written a book on uh, Michael. Oh, blanking on his name now. Oh, Michael Brooks. Michael Brooks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's the one that came out uh, just a few weeks ago, actually. It's a how to guide to cosmopolitan socialism, uh, mm-hmm. which is my tribute uh, to the late Michael Brooks. Yeah, it was a, a brilliant, brilliant podcaster. Died way yeah. too young. Um, very smart guy. Uh, you also wrote a book on Jordan Peterson. Uh, well, that was co-authored. So uh, it was uh, me, Marion Trejo, Ben Burgess, uh, and Conrad Hamilton. Uh, our book, Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of uh, Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. Still my, uh, the best-selling thing I've ever put my name to, I should say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, yeah, it's that kind of thing is gonna gonna attract people. Is that John Peterson on the front on the front cover of this book? I, I can't really tell. Is it that on the red oh, yeah. side of his? That's him. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's a um, kind of a mashup of Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, uh, and I think one or two other people. But uh, that cover art was from uh, J. Andrew World, uh, who is um, one of uh, Ben Burgess's collaborators. Cool. I think I think there's Nietzsche in there as well, like in the center. Maybe I, I can't tell, but yeah, that is Shapiro and uh, Peterson. Who, yeah, all the all the best people. Yeah, just an absolute nightmare of a blunt rotation there. Um, but I mean, the book is a, it's the ultimate nightmare blunt rotation, really, um, which is going to really sell your uh, um, intellectual work short. So the the book is the political right inequality turning back the tide of egalitarian modernity. It's a little rhyme. Um, and um, uh, yes, it, it's brilliant. Thank and you. it's so having written Postmodern Conservatism a few years back, um, I think we should kind of start with that because it, it's not exactly a precursor to this book, but it's something people should kind of understand before moving on to this one. So I, I know it, you summarize a whole book is the dumbest question you can ask a, a, a writer of anything, but. What was the kind of main thrust of postmodern conservatism? Sure. Well, uh, the seeds of that book uh, were obviously in the 2016 election, uh, when, like a lot of people, I was shocked by the ele- by Trump's rise to power. 
and I decided that I was going to try to interrogate uh, the roots of his ascendancy. Uh, and around 2018, all the kind of core ideas came together, uh, and I wrote and published it in 2019. But the basic idea of the rise of postmodern conservatism uh, was that Trumpism is the kind of reactionary politics that one would see uh, in a postmodern epoch, uh, particularly characterized by this strategic epistemic skepticism, as I called it there, right? This willingness to display a wary attitude, uh, some of the claims of liberal rationalism, uh, and even to try to deny at some points that anything like objective truth existed. Um, but of course, you know, backing down from that kind of position when convenient. Uh, and I still stand by a lot of what uh, I wrote in that book. I think it holds up pretty well. Um, but does. one of the criticisms uh, that people made of the book was, well, you're kind of pathologizing conservatism or you're kind of situating it in a broader cultural context, uh, but you're not really taking on the core arguments of the right uh, as they themselves would understand them. Uh, and that's legitimately very true, right? Uh, I mean, the rise of postmodern conservatism isn't exactly a dialogue or critique of Trumpism so much as it's a diagnosis of why Trumpism emerged. So in response to these criticisms, and also because I felt that I had more to say about the right, uh, I ended up uh, producing the book that you just read, uh, The Political mm -hmm. Right and Equality, Turning Back the Tide of Egalitarian Modernity for Rutledge, uh, which is much more of a kind of straightforward political theory text that talks about a variety of different right-wing and conservative authors express like unpacks their arguments and tries to explain why I think uh, they're fundamentally mistaken in their core convictions. Mm -hmm. Cool. So devil's advocate question time. Sure. So um, what's the value of taking people at, at their word at um, trying to do a, a reading of their own work when, you know, you and I both know that they're, they're kind of not they've they've it's a the, you've already pathologized it you know you, you've kind of figured out where it's from it's kind of like um talking to a guy with tinfoil around his head about why he needs to put tinfoil around his head when you already know it's schizophrenia it could be a neurological thing could be a billion different things uh yeah or you know maybe the aliens really are coming from who knows but um maybe. no th the reason is that um like you uh if you i can you know have a lot of funny things to say about the contemporary right, because a lot of what the contemporary right does is very funny uh, and mm -hmm. unserious. Uh, and there are a huge array of right-wing grifters and, you know, people who aren't really serious uh, about putting forward arguments. What they're just trying to do is troll the libs or get a word in edgewise so that they can kind of agitate for their political position. Uh, and all that's the kind of stuff that I unpack and discuss in the rise of postmodern conservatism. But I think it's important for leftists to be aware of the fact that there is a sustainable and long enduring uh, right-wing tradition of political thought. And there are some seminal figures within that tradition, right? Uh, people like Edmund Burke or Dostoevsky or Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Can't just be dismissed as cranks or grifters uh, or people who are just mindlessly defending power and privilege. Uh, they lay out comprehensive arguments for their position. And so what I was trying to do was not only unpack those arguments and explain them uh, for a liberal or left-wing audience, uh, but also to try to offer some criticisms of them to explain why I think we should remain committed to the enlightenment project of securing uh, liberty, equality, and solidarity for all. Yeah, I mean, one thing it definitely can't be accused of is, you know, this isn't your rightward turn book where you realize that they're actually, um, yeah, you haven't, uh, it's not a heel turn. But um, so let's start at the, at the beginning of conservatism, uh, Aristotle. Um, so, I mean, it's not like most people who listen to this or virtually any other podcast are going to not know who Aristotle was, but how is he a conservative? Like, why does conservatism kind of start with that guy? Sure. Well, one of the things I want to stress is that uh, I don't actually claim that Aristotle is conservative per se, right? Um, and it's important to note that there is a longstanding and very interesting tradition of left-wing Aristotelian thought, uh, liberal Aristotelian thought, you name it. Yeah, right? Marx um, loved him, right? Yeah, exactly. Even Marx was deeply inspired by Aristotle, uh, characterized him as the kind of peak of antiquarian thinking, uh, you know, drew very heavily on his social theory. And that's a tradition that continues to this day. So what I'm critical of in the book is what I call the Aristotelian worldview uh, or the Aristotelian universe that many on the right remain very nostalgically uh, attached to. 
Uh, and this vision of the world or the cosmos, really, uh, is one where there is an orderly nature within which everything has a purpose or a role to play, uh, a telos, if you want to use the Aristotelian language. Uh, and this nature and universe is hierarchical at its very core, right? Uh, yes, everyone and everything has a role to play within it, but there are higher and order kinds of animals, higher and order forms of being, and of course, higher and lower kinds of people. Right. Uh, and, you know, Aristotle was quite express about this throughout his work. Right. Uh, you can just read the politics where he distinguishes between those who possess a uncanny uh, kind of a deliberative reason uh, who are entitled to exercise political power uh, and you know, people who are natural slaves who completely lack deliberative reason and are fit only to you know, clean the toilets in society. Uh, very much this kind of hierarchical social vision. Uh, and this worldview was extremely appealing and extremely powerful and influential uh, for many thousands of years. Uh, and it goes through many different iterations. Uh, probably the most famous iteration, of course, is the attempt to synthesize Aristotle with a variety of Christian themes uh, by various scholastic authors uh, who in turn, would use his work to defend things like the feudal system and the feudal aristocracy, uh, not to mention the kind of economic base upon which it all depended. Uh, but starting in the 16th and 17th century, one sees a remarkable thing happen, uh, which is people become increasingly very critical of this Aristotelian universe uh, and the forms of hierarchical organization that are associated with it. Probably the most famous figure in this regard is Thomas Hobbes, who I spend a little bit of time talking about in the book, uh, mm -hmm. where if you read Leviathan, Hobbes says, Aristotle is just nonsense from beginning to end, right? I kid you not, right? Uh, he says, you know, there are a few things that are as ridiculous uh, as Aristotle's metaphysics, uh, as useless as his politics, and for the most part, just entirely wrong as his ethics, right? Not one to mince words. Mm -hmm. uh, and in place of this Aristotelian worldview, what you see thinkers like Hobbes or Locke put forward is this idea that actually people by nature are equal uh, or almost entirely equal uh, in every significant way. Uh, and so it's inequality uh, that is unnatural or artificial uh, or that needs to be justified by the person who's putting forward contentions for an anti-egalitarian system. And this is a revolution in thought, uh, but also, of course, something that provokes genuine revolutions in action uh, and in history. Uh, so these thinkers eventually are going to inspire the American, the French, the Haitian Revolution, uh, and of course, this is something that conservatives and the political right generally is going to respond to with a great deal of intellectual energy, uh, not to mention, it's important to add, a great deal of contempt. Hmm. Yeah. So obviously fast forwarding uh, through about 1700 uh, years of history there, mm -hmm. and we get to the kind of enlightenment era thinkers. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you do a good job of balancing the people like uh, Edmund Burke and at Hobbes and people who most people who do do like an intro to philosophy course have heard of uh -huh. people like uh De Maestra, um it, it was someone I've literally never heard of before I think one of your articles what was who is you consider he, yourself fortunate really in some ways <laughs> I feel bad that uh, I've now introduced him into your worldview yeah he, he, he's an, I, I like weird freaks like him he's an yeah. interesting guy um like I, I like the a big book of weird freaks, and this uh, fits the bill. <laughs> Dem tell us a bit more about Demetrius, because I think people need to know about this guy. He's in, he's a very fascinating guy. He is a very fascinating guy, right? So uh, Joseph de Maistre was born into the lower nobility uh, around the time of the French Revolution. Uh, he initially adopted a kind of quasi liberal, right wing liberal disposition uh, about reform, uh, particularly hoping for. The lower aristocracy to play a more of a role in uh, the politics of the nation. But when the French Revolution happened, he was shocked and appalled, uh, to put it mildly, uh, especially once it became very clear that the French Revolution wasn't just going to, frankly, stay in France, uh, but that it was going to export itself uh, all around the world. Uh, and people like Burke, or writers like Burke, uh, responded to this with contempt uh, and anger, uh, but they were still willing to offer some concessions to the liberal kinds of reform uh, that were being agitated for in countries like Britain or France. Uh, and, you know, in doing so, Burke finds a tradition of moderate conservatism or ordered liberty conservatism, however you want to call it. Uh, de Maistre is entirely uncompromising uh, with the French Revolution and its ideology in the way that, you know, Burke, for instance, would be. Uh, in fact, you know, de Maistre is one of the first people on the political right uh, to really exaggerate uh, sometimes in a spectacular sense, uh, the wrongness that he associates with these kinds of left-wing like um, reforms, even characterizing them as inspired by or directly satanic, 
right? Awesome. Uh, but what makes him an interesting figure is how in responding to the ideology of the French Revolution, de Maistre articulates so many of the core themes that will go on to be central to the political right. Uh, probably the most, the two most important that I discuss in my book are firstly, Joseph de Maistre is utterly contemptuous uh, of Enlightenment rationalism. Uh, and again, a way that Burke wouldn't be. Uh, for instance, he says, you know, reason is fundamentally a destructive force, uh, even a satanic or Luciferian force. The reason being that the spread of enlightenment reason encourages everyone to think that they can be a critic of the social order that they find themselves in. Uh, and Demetra says, no, right? In fact, uh, you should not be a critic of the social order into which you are born. You should treat it like you would a religion, right? Uh, accept that, you know, society is ordained by God, uh, appreciate its core tenets and core principles as if they're dogma and don't question them. Uh, because if you do open social and political authority to constant needlesome questioning uh, by everyone who thinks that they can become a critic, then you dissolve the foundation of society, which is ultimately respect for authority, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one respect in which he is really innovative. Uh, another respect in which Demetra is really quite innovative is even though he is profoundly contemptuous of the left, he is also a real innovator in trying to learn from the left, draw upon some of its themes, and use that to make reactionary thought sexy in a kind of way. Uh, so for instance, when responding to people who claim that, well, democracy or republicanism is an elevating social form that would raise people up uh, from the mire, uh, Demetra says, no, in fact, monarchy is the most elevating kind of social order because the ordinary people get to participate in the splendor of the monarchy uh, without actually, of course, participating in it in any meaningful way. Right? They're subordinated to it, mm -hmm. but they kind of relish in it, uh, if you will. Uh, and, you know, Demetra will also say things like war can also be extremely edifying, uh, since, of course, many people arguing for a kind of humanist outlook were contemptuous of violence. Uh, you know, Demetra says, how boring uh, a world would it be if everyone just kind of passively lived in their country uh, and, you know, ate food and drink wine and hung out with their friends. Uh, you know, there'd be nothing of existential value that would come from this. Demetra really anticipates Nietzsche in saying that war can have a kind of beauty uh, and also a kind of elevating quality to it because it brings life into focus, existential focus, in a way that very few other things can. Uh, and he also points out that war and violence is really useful in consecrating respect for authority uh, because there's a kind of godlike quality in the, to this ability to give life and to take life. Uh, and the person who has that kind of power, boy, oh boy, are people prone to listening to them. Uh, so really innovative uh, in that way uh, and profoundly frightening in a lot of other respects. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've seen similar arguments are still being made, aren't they? I've, there was a uh, article in, I think it was like The Federalist or something along those lines, uh, a little while about um, Epicureanism, mm -hmm. how... Um, the modern left or virtually all liberals are really Epicureans. We want to have comfortable lives and, um, you know, just relax and for nothing to challenge us or to be bad. Um, and the counterpoint to that is a warrior's mindset, uh, the kind of the kind of shit that like Bronze Age pervert and other <laughs> idiots would, would talk about having actually never been in, a, in combat. And, um, you know... The second if they heard a gun go off they would get ptsd but um yeah it's it's still around this idea oh absolutely right uh i mean bap uh, is just one uh, iteration of this right uh, and a particularly vulgar one i should add uh, i say this because i have an article that came out about him uh just today in commonweal that people can check out oh, if they're interested cool. right uh but you know let's just use two other examples right uh fascism really drew upon these kinds of Demetrian themes uh to legitimate itself uh you know think about you know the structure of fascist society right you have this extraordinary leader figure who's almost always associated with this yearning for military expansion and military glory uh there's this emphasis on violence and activism as bringing life into focus in a way that nothing else can uh and there's even a kind of flavor uh of left-wing thought in fascism uh that you know again is very demetrian in its quality uh where fascists will say look you know uh, leftists talk a lot about this need to overcome class conflict, uh, but rather than overcoming class conflict by eliminating classes, for example, uh, we'll overcome it by projects of military grandiosity uh, that will unite the nation uh, in firm conviction around the leader figure uh, and will 
obscure or eliminate uh, all these more vulgar materialist desires. Uh, again, very Demetrian uh, in its kind of flavor. Uh, or, you know, you can look to the 1990s uh, with neoconservatism in the United States, which I spent some time on in the book as well. Uh, the neoconservatives, if you read their work carefully, uh, responded to the fall of communism with not a little bit of regret and concern. Uh, because they felt, well, there's no, no thing to struggle for in the world any longer. Uh, it's almost like there is something missing in a universe where one does not have a significant antagonist uh, to kind of compel the people to greatness. Uh, and you can read things like the Project for the New American Century, which is the neoconservative kind of... Uh, manifesto uh, that was produced in the 1990s. Uh, and all of them, you know, the neocons who contributed to it say things like, look, uh, without an enemy like the Soviet Union, uh, American society is becoming decadent, soft. Uh, people are focusing on idle consumeristic pleasures. Uh, we can't have that, right? We need to repurpose the nation to a grander kind of project of world building or empire building, uh, because that's a lot more exciting and dynamic uh, than, again, just sitting there figuring out what kind of TV you're going to buy, uh, you know, you want a flat screen or a big screen or whatever it happens to be. Uh, so this fascination with violence is an enduring feature of many strands of right-wing thought. Uh, and in many ways, again, Demetra is a perverse pioneer. Awesome. And to totally flip around, well, maybe, maybe not, but um, to a, a much more well-known figure, Hegel. I mean, <laughs> You did devote about 10 pages to Hegel, which, I mean, a lot of people are, are going to say, hey, that he's the he's pretty much invented Marxism. There would be no Marx about Hegel. There, we, he's, the, uh, he's the originator of uh, dialectics and uh, materialism and things that the left would be um, nothing without. How can that guy be a conservative? And you do a very good job of showing that there's a really strong conservative bent to his thought. Not necessarily conservative one, but there is a conservative reading of Hegel that's uh, possible, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Hegel's work is so rich and so multifaceted that you can give almost any reading to it that you want and find textual evidence to support it, right? Uh, in no small part, because say whatever you want about Hegel, but uh, he was certainly willing to grant a lot of different sides to every kind of argument and every kind of position. Uh, so you know, before we dive into right Hegelianism. I do want to say that personally, my reading of Hegel is a leftist one. Uh, I think that that is the appropriate way to understand his work. And I do think that there's an inherently radical uh, quality to dialectics. Um, Frederick Jameson uh, probably um, defends this position most eloquently in his uh, Valences of the Dialectic. So my point or purpose uh, in this section of the book isn't to sit there and kind of crush uh, or squash this left-wing Hegel, which again, I think is the right way to read him. Uh, just to point out that there is a long-standing tradition of right Hegelianism that has been with us since the 19th century, and it's been profoundly influential. Uh, and right Hegelians, of course, think that they are giving uh, the right reading of the master. Uh, so in the reading of the right Hegelians, uh, what Hegel fundamentally offers, particularly in his mature works like the philosophy of right, is an affirmation of society and its ranks uh, as they are, right? Uh, where once you kind of run through the system, uh, what you come to the conclusion uh, of, but sorry, the conclusion that you come to is that ultimately society has a kind of inner necessity to it. Its rankings have a kind of necessity to them. Uh, and the job of the Hegelian philosopher isn't to criticize that but to understand and explain and justify it inadvertently, right? Uh, and this idea, of course, is very appealing to a wide array of conservatives, uh, including many right Hegelians like Roger Scruton uh, or Michael Oakeshott, uh, or even more radical uh, right Hegelians, people like uh, Paul Gottfried in the United States, who coined the phrase um, alt-right for those who are interested, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, or at least, you know, he's most widely associated with that term, alt-right. Uh, now, again, I think that their reading of Hegel is fundamentally mistaken uh, because it really downplays the importance of negation in his metaphysics, uh, instead describing Hegel as fundamentally the philosopher of affirmation uh, and necessity, and that's just not appropriate to my mind. Uh, just for it's, not, the, it's not a careless reading, is the sorry, point of the For the folks that um, are not as uh, conversant in... Um, Philosophy. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of neologisms in, in Hegel, um, almost as many as Heidegger, but, um, <laughs> who we'll get to later. Uh, but um, when we're talking about affirmation and negation in Hegel, what, what do we mean exactly? 
And why is it a why is there like a political valence to it as well? Of course, right. Uh, what I mean by describing Hegel and or right Hegelianism as a philosophy of affirmation uh, is what people like Scruton see Hegel as doing uh, is again saying, look, this is the necessity that underpins society, uh, not just the social necessity, but even the metaphysical necessity underpinning it. And once you understand this rationally, you become reconciled to it. Uh, you know, you kind of accept mm-hmm. the world as it is, uh, and you endorse it. Uh, as it stands, right? Uh, and that's very different than the left Hegelian reading of the master, uh, which really stresses this idea of negation, right? That anything that human beings uh, construct uh, inevitably contains the inner seeds of its own downfall and transition. Uh, and through this downfall and transition, something greater uh, will ultimately emerge. Uh, and this, of course, is an idea that is profoundly influential on people like Marx, right? Where you know, the basic Marxist idea, put very crudely, is that uh, liberal capitalist society is the highest social form to exist right now. Uh, very important to stress that, right? Marx wasn't a critic of, uh, wasn't a thoughtless critic of um, liberal capitalism, right? He thought it was uh, an important transitional stage in human history. Uh, but he says, you know, ultimately, capitalism is going to fall victim to its own inner contradictions, uh, which are myriad, uh, and give way to a far higher form of society uh, where the Fostering or development of human powers will become an end of in and of itself for the first time, as you put it in Capital Volume 3. Uh, and we rise to new heights uh, that have never been seen before, as Trotsky once put it. Right. Uh, so again, I'm very sympathetic to this left Hegelian reading. Uh, I actually have a book that's coming out not too long with a couple of other co-authors called Flowers for Marx that people can look if they're interested in my take on all of this stuff. Uh, but in you know, the political right inequality, I'm just trying to describe where this right Hegelian tradition comes from single out a couple of the major figures in it uh, and explain again why it's not like they're giving a careless reading of Hegel. There's textual evidence to support what they're trying to do. Uh, and those of us who are intrigued or committed to a left Hegelian or Marxist project will constantly need to be critical uh, of this attempt to read the master as fundamentally a conservative figure. Cool. So we'll come back in a little minute just to uh, pick up from there, but uh, let's have a little musical break just to clear the palette a little. Nice. Um, so uh, my podcast and homie, Eden, uh, recommended this band. Um, they're called uh, Rosa Fianscap. I'm not sure where they're from. Um, based on their song titles, I think, Holland? <laughs> Jeg Bleu Til Deg? Yeah, could be, could be Dutch. Uh, they're uh, kind of a hardcore band, um, deeply political, anti-fascist hardcore band. Um, but in the kind of very emotional, um, deep, um, almost black metal inflected way. You'll have fans like, um, fuck, I don't remember the name of the band I was going to cite there, but (laughs) there are many other good bands uh, in this thing. They've got a new album called, uh, I'm going to utterly screw up this pronunciation, Jeg Blier Till Deg. No matter what that means. No Uh, clue. (laughs) This is the fourth track of it, which is called Aldry. Uh, check them out. Uh, I think this may be a first album for them. They are pretty interested. Uh, it's kind of post-metal and hardcore together. A nice little dialectical fusion between their synthesis going on. Nice. Um, check them out. Uh, this is uh, Rosa Fine's Cat with Aldry.
That fucking uh, Scandinavian metal, eh? Yeah, the, the, one of the best kinds. Yeah, yeah, of course. Apart from all the church burning and fascism. <laughs> but um, speaking of fascism, we're going to talk about. We're going to get into the the further right here because people, the people we've been talking to, apart from Demetri, who's kind of almost proto-fascist, maybe. We, people have definitely made that argument. Um. Yeah. It, People have been pretty respectable so far. So let's let's talk about some real freaks. Let's get into some crazy folks. But I mean, some. I think first though, we need to just top up a little bit on on a respectability because there's um, what the book does, which I really appreciated, was you don't purely concentrate on philosophers, critics, political thinkers. Uh, there's couple of very long engagements with writers, Dostoevsky and T.S. Eliot, mm-hmm. um, two, two of my faves. I mean, pretty much everyone could say Dostoevsky and T.S. Eliot are brilliant, even if they don't oh, particularly yeah. enjoy, their, um, enjoy any of the particular stuff or in or their politics. I, mean, I, I read you know, Dostoevsky back in university and at school and had very little understanding of what his politics were. I didn't really read crime and punishment in a political way which is baffling to me nowadays t.s Eliot, you kind of he doesn't exact he doesn't hit you over the head with his politics but it's definitely there and you can you can kind of make it i reading him as a teenager 
you know, angsty teen. I kind of, I, I read him in that, in a him um, echoing my teen angst. He, he was talking about, yeah, the, the conformists and uh, uh, all the jocks and uh, in the school. He wasn't talking, the hollow men didn't mean like Western civilization. It was just all the people who weren't as cool as I was. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. Uh, I mean, um, boy, oh boy, did I ever read uh, a lot of uh, T.S. Eliot uh, <laughs> around the time, I guess it was 17, 18. Um, because, you know, oh, yeah. he spoke to that kind of angsty, moody, existential phase uh, that a lot of us go through. Just oh, totally, better than yeah. almost he's, anyone else. Yeah, he, he, uh, kind of similar to Nietzsche in that that uh, regard he's someone you kind of you kind of get when you're 17 18 and you don't quite get them until, until you go back a little later and find out oh, they were way further to the right than i ever thought they were but are still brilliant so it ha- dostoevsky he he yeah, I, I don't think people are going to not know his work but how is he a conservative well, uh, Dostoevsky, I want to stress, uh, is a brilliant writer, right? Uh, I think um, a couple of weeks ago, I saw something trending on Twitter, which was um, an argument that the political right is incapable of producing artists of genius. Uh, and I just think that that's entirely wrong. Uh, the political right is very capable uh, of producing, yeah, I know, artists of genius, right? Okay, I'm going to cat amongst pigeons. Are they still capable of producing artists of genius? Because, I mean, uh, they have by, like, you know, T.S. Eliot, Dostoevsky... Nut Hansen was a fucking Nazi, and he's written one of the best books of the 20th century. Um, but can, can, are postmodern conservatives still capable of it? Do no, I don't think postmodern conservatives are capable of it, uh, in no small part because uh, they are so profoundly stamped uh, by the features of postmodern culture, uh, which includes just this tendency to need to recycle what came before, its tropes, its idioms, uh, its kind of symbols, uh, without really generating much that's particularly new from this morass, right? Um, but, you know, to go back to Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky did do something uh, that was really new, uh, which was to present, quite frankly, right, uh, an argument for Orthodox Russian nationalism uh, and Christianity uh, in a way that spoke uh, very profoundly to the growing sense of existential unease uh, that marked the 19th century. Uh, And in particular, to speak to uh, the kind of educated elite uh, in Russian society and indeed in European society that was very tempted or transfixed by these ideas. Uh, So just by way of background, one of the reasons I think Dostoevsky's art uh, is so spectacular uh, even from a political standpoint, uh, is, and this actually speaks to what you're getting at with postmodern conservatives, uh, is unlike many on the right today when they offer criticisms of the left, Dostoevsky really hits home uh, in some of his criticisms of progressive doctrines because he was progressive uh, early on in his life, right? Uh, he spent a lot of time in Christian socialist and liberal and anarchist circles. Uh, he adopted a lot of their views, not necessarily their atheism, but certainly their kind of progressive reformist outlook. Uh, And some of his early novels, which are quite beautiful, I should add, uh, are really stamped by this concern for the poor uh, and implicitly argue for a kind of Christian socialism. Uh, You can think of novels like Poor Folk, for example, right? Uh, All that changed when he was sent to prison uh, and really encountered uh, a lot of the working classes that he had written about so beautifully uh, at their worst. Uh, And this stamped his outlook uh, with a much more pessimistic view of human nature than what had characterized uh, his writing before. Uh, and it's also worth noting that, you know, Dostoevsky uh, in prison uh, became a lot more religious um, in no small part because he felt it was absolutely crucial uh, to recommit oneself to one's faith tradition in order to abide the suffering uh, that he endured in Siberia. So when he comes back to Russian society, uh, he's a very changed man. Uh, and one and, and other people might have responded to being imprisoned by the Tsar's government uh, by becoming more critical of it. Uh, but Dostoevsky actually reconciles himself to Tsarism uh, and writes the great novels of his maturity, uh, which offer really scathing criticisms of the influence modern ideas are having on the Russian elite in particular. Uh, probably the most famous example of this is the one you mentioned, Crime and Punishment, right? which is the story of Raskolnikov, who's a very poor law student uh, who's starting to make a bit of a name of himself and for himself in Russian literary circles with an article he publishes uh, about crime. Um, but he's broke. 
he's not really able to continue his schooling. Uh, so he decides, influenced by a variety of different novel ideas, uh, to commit a murder uh, by killing a pawnbroker, uh, taking your money, and using that to wrap up his education. Uh, and as I point out in the, in the book, he offers a number of different self-justifications for this act. Sometimes uh, a utilitarian justification, saying things like, look, you know, this woman is wretched. Uh, she treats everybody like crap. There's really no other way to describe it. Uh, she's not even doing anything with the money. She's just kind of hoarding it because she's a miser. Uh, and, you know, if I take that money, I'm going to go on. I'll complete my degree. I'll be able to look after my family, particularly my mom and sister, who are very poor and expect a lot of me. Uh, and I'll make strides in the world to try to make it a better place. Uh, at other points, he offers a kind of more Nietzschean or proto-Nietzschean justification for his acts, uh, describing himself or defining himself as a great man like Napoleon, uh, who's kind of not censored uh, by orthodox Christian morality, uh, but instead exists beyond good and evil and is willing to do whatever it takes uh, to pursue his grand outlook uh, or to implement his grand plan. Uh, but of course, ultimately, none of these modern ideas are sufficiently convincing to Raskolnikov to help him move past the extraordinary guilt he feels uh, at committing these murders, because he ends up uh, inadvertently killing another person as well. Uh, and he goes and he confesses his crime. Uh, then, you know, he gets sent to Siberia, uh, but it's a relatively light sentence because, you know, he admitted what he did. Uh, and in Siberia, it's implied that he also comes back to uh, the Christian faith uh, with the aid, I should add, of his uh, girlfriend. Uh, and this is Rush, like Dostoevsky offering an argument for why a kind of orthodox Christianity is ultimately more existentially gratifying than any of these newfangled modernist ideas that are coming from the West and that seem to be having a corrosive influence on the Russian youth, right? Uh, but probably his most spectacular achievement is, of course, the Brothers Karamazov, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which is, you know, usually considered to be one of the great novels uh, in world literature, and you won't get any argument about that from me. Uh, and this novel also has a very political undercurrent to it, uh, where, once again, we have a young man, uh, Ivan Karamazov, who's been profoundly corrupted uh, by modern ideas uh, and is, you know, not sure how to live his life uh, with Russian orthodoxy disappearing. Uh, and ultimately, at the end of this novel, uh, the person who comes across looking best is uh, Alyosha, right? The youngest brother in the Karamazov family uh, who is less corrupted uh, by a lot of these modern ideas uh, and instead commits himself uh, to a kind of tranquil life uh, focused on the importance of Russian orthodoxy uh, in the countryside. Uh, and Dostoevsky's point in this novel, of course, is that even a very, a very clever man like Ivan Karamazov uh, who tries to think his way past the existential dilemmas of life using the kind of modern tools uh, of progressive philosophy and progressive politics is ultimately going to wind up in a dead end. Uh, whereas Alyosha, who on the surface seems like a much more simple kind of person, uh, ultimately made the right call by dedicating himself to the faith tradition uh, into which he was born uh, and to reconciling him uh, through reconciling himself to the world as it is, rather than trying to projecting utopian hopes uh, into the future that are ultimately just going to be disappointing. Mm -hmm. And there's also The Devils, which yes, is uh, another, I read a lot later than my kind of teenage Dostoevsky years, but uh, is absolutely brilliant. Uh, that whole part about um, some leftist thinker having sat down and thought about uh, what how to structure society and he starts out with unlimited freedom and ends up with unlimited despotism he can't even explain his ideas but they are 100 percent true because he's figured them out himself that's that's a guy i can probably see online uh, a few times that's a very modern type of guy yeah and this is what i mean uh i 99 of right-wing critics uh, criticisms of the left today are pretty shit uh, because it's are, very yeah. obvious very quickly that the people who are offering criticism to the left just don't know anything about you know left-wing thought, uh, the kind of personalities that emerge in progressive circles. Uh, Dostoevsky was different because, again, he did spend a lot of time uh, with progressives and understood the appeal uh, of these ideas. Uh, so sometimes he's not when he's not in a particularly profound mood, uh, he just wants to kind of have a laugh. Uh, he'll paint these caricatures uh, and satires of progressive figures uh, that really do sting if you're on the left like myself, uh, because you can recognize the kind of personalities that appear. Uh, and, you know, there's bite uh, to the satire. Uh, mm -hmm. So the example you gave in Devils uh, comes from a meaning uh, of radicals uh, in the village. 
where, you know, they all gather together. Uh, they piously kind of congratulate themselves for being committed to progressive reforms. Uh, they all argue about what kind of pronouns to refer to each other with. Uh, I kid you not, right? You know, do you use sir or comrade or whatever. Uh, and then there's a reading from their chief theorist. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, he says, look, I started from this premise that people should possess limited, unlimited freedom. Uh, but I ended with this conclusion that actually we need an unlimited despotism. Uh, it's really too bad that I've come to this conclusion, but the only solution to the social problem is the one that I put forward. So we're just going to have to live with it. Uh, and all of them just kind of nod along and are like, well, that seems to be the rational thing to do. Uh, and, you know, you can find parallels for this uh, in a wide array uh, of different progressive circles, uh, mm -hmm. which is, again, why the satire of Devils is quite funny in a way that what Chris Rufo uh, or Jordan Peterson has to say about the left very, very rarely resonates uh, outside a small cabal of the already convinced. Mm, yeah, it's a, a kind of common refrain on the on the left to say, you know, if I just switch sides, I'd be so good at being a conservative uh, grifter. because <laughs> I'd actually have the inside track. I can make proper criticisms and, you know, I'm, I'm ultimately smart enough that I could outsmart the other conservative grifters. But um, speaking of probably the, so bearing in mind we've got like 10 minutes left and this is not nearly enough time to cover the the two big uh, con conservative thinkers, even far right thinkers that we, um, that the book spends a lot of time on, which is Nietzsche and Heidegger. Mm -hmm. So I think instead of just you know, summarizing Nietzsche's thought, because that's, uh, impossible task and take forever. What? So the, a lot of the current scholarism, scholarship on Nietzsche has kind of turned around in the last few years. Oh yeah. If I'm at the, you can probably tell a lot this a lot better than I can. But um, the idea of Nietzsche as existentialist, as uh, uh, like a bohemian rebellious figure, um, who can who even communists can take as a inspiration of how to self-overcome and so on has kind of been replaced by people going oh no he was actually very very much further to the right than uh, we can really countenance he is a aristocratic rebel to use the the phrase he actually had a really monstrous political ideology and hated um, socialism as he understood it in his time. Um, it, am I, I know I'm glossing a lot of stuff there, but is that generally where we find ourselves with Nietzsche interpretation nowadays? Absolutely, right? So uh, in the book and also in my Nietzsche collection, uh, I discuss three phases, uh, if you want, in the particularly Anglo-American reception of Nietzsche. Uh, the first in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, was to really read him as a political thinker, uh, and in particular by the time of the Second World War, as a kind of proto-fascist thinker, right? Uh, so, yeah. I mean, his, his books were given out to the SS. They, they definitely understood him as being political and having their pol politics. Absolutely, right? And I mean, a lot of people would have agreed with Bertrand Russell's kind of plithy statement that the Second World War was in a lot of ways Nietzsche's war, uh, and that, you know, the core of his philosophy... agree with that. Yeah, well, he, he did. He, he did want big wars after, in in his name. He straight up said that. He did, right? I'm sure he would have had uh, ambivalent, but not necessarily exclusively critical um, feelings about people associating the Second World War with him. Uh, but what ended up happening, I think, appropriately, I should add, after about the 1950s uh, and late 1940s, uh, particularly through the work of Walter Kaufman, is Nietzsche was reinterpreted as a kind of psychological existentialist who was, for the most part, apolitical, right? Uh, this was Kaufman's famous reading, uh, particularly in his book, uh, just titled Nietzsche, right? Uh, and also the translations into English uh, that he gave when he would write these introductions saying, look, you know, there are some troublesome things in Nietzsche, 100%, uh, but this attempt to kind of paint him as a proto-fascist thinker is ridiculous. Uh, for the most part, he's just a very interesting and very canny uh, kind of psychologist who anticipates the work of Sartre, Camus, uh, and a wide array of other respectable figures uh, who are kind of emerging in letters at that point. Uh, and this reading lasted for a long time and it's, you know, has its merits. Uh, and then in the 1970s um, and 1960s, when Nietzsche was reintroduced as a political thinker, what was really interesting about it was, for the most part, it was radical leftists uh, who were kind of offering their takes on him. Uh, so 
in the hands of somebody like Deleuze or Foucault or even Richard Vorty, right? Uh, what Nietzsche offers is a way of kind of deconstructing uh, bourgeois pieties and bourgeois moralism to create space for bohemian free thinkers uh, and different kinds of personalities to emerge uh, without the constraints imposed upon them uh, by this kind of social conservative moralism. Uh, but now what we're really starting to see is a reinterpretation uh, or a reinvigoration of the idea that Nietzsche is fundamentally a right-wing thinker. Uh, and this has been led by people like Ronald Biener, uh, and I should also uh, add people like uh, Domenico Lucerto, uh, who wrote mm -hmm. a gigantic book uh, on Nietzsche as a radical right uh, thinker or a formative influence on the radical right. And I think that this is the appropriate way to read Nietzsche, frankly, right? Uh, or else I wouldn't have included him in the book, right? Because uh, I don't want to in any way, shape, or form insinuate that I'm here to cancel Nietzsche or to imply that there can't be creative left-wing uh, readings of him because I know many that are that uh, left-wing readings of Nietzsche that are uh, very interesting, right? Uh, particularly people like Daniel Tutt uh, or uh, Kuk Philosophy have offered engaged... Mm, yeah. uh, we had that book on the, yeah, that on the show uh, a little while back. Yeah, absolutely, right? Uh, but fundamentally, I mean, if you look at his work, uh, what becomes very clear uh, is that Nietzsche is radically uh, and consistently hostile, uh, particularly in his mature period, to any kind of progressive movement uh, that is threatening the ascendancy of the rabble uh, or the herd. Uh, and he could go very far with this, right? Uh, if you read some of his uh, late period work, he'll even chastise um, the conservative government uh, of Bismarck uh, for not doing enough to put the rabble back in their place, right? Uh, so if Otto von Bismarck uh, is not right-wing enough for you, uh, that should give you a sense of just where Nietzsche situates himself uh, on the political spectrum, right? Uh, and, you know, if you read his work, uh, he consistently calls for the emergence of a new kind of aristocracy to appear that will reinvigorate culture, uh, consistently calls for the, the quashing uh, of progressive movements, uh, particularly socialism, which he characterized as uh, Christianity with the residue of Rousseau, right? Uh, and even is willing to go far, so far as to say uh, we should flirt with the idea of reintroducing slavery uh, because having a viable slave class will allow the true aristocrats of society the leisure time uh, to kind of pursue great projects in a way that very few other kinds of economic bases could. Uh, and this should all be extremely problematic, needless to say, uh, for anyone on the left who, again, is committed to the revolutionary credo uh, of equality for all, liberty for all, and solidarity for all. And um, so, picking up in the current day, we've obviously got people following Nietzsche's tradition, that the aforementioned BAP. Um, but is the is the current conservative and uh, well, I should say rather the are the is the current extreme right Nietzschean? Are they using his ideas? Do they want that kind of world with a, a helot class and? Um, a handful of aristocrats at the top building pyramids or whatever they're supposed to be doing? Oh, I think that there's definitely a profound influence on the American right right now. Uh, so I have a couple pieces coming out soon um, that discuss this, uh, most notably an op-ed in, um, in These Times, uh, which discusses the new three-legged stool uh, of the American hard right. Uh, but right now, the American hard right is torn between people who are committed to national conservatism, uh, you know, followers of uh, Yoram Hazoni, uh, people who are committed to post-liberalism, uh, which I also discuss a lot in the book. Uh, mm -hmm. You can think of figures like uh, Patrick Deneen uh, or Adrian Vermeule, uh, or once upon a time, uh, someone like Saurabh Amari. Uh, but then there's also a very significant Nietzschean right that's emerging uh, in the United States. Uh, BAP is a very good exemplar of this, but you can also, there are also people like Lom 37, uh, who's published um, in First Things, uh, amongst other magazines. Uh, I would add somebody like Michael Millerman into the mix there, uh, who's more of a Heideggerian or a Duganite, uh, but shares many of the same fascinations with aristocracy and inequality that Nietzsche held to. Uh, or you can look at somebody like Richard Hanania, for example, uh, who just recently published a laudatory uh, review of BAP's thesis. Uh, and, you know, tries to temper some of the more extreme uh, dimensions of Nietzschean thought with appeals to classical liberal values, uh, but is very, very transparently uh, attracted to the kind of politics somebody like BAP is arguing for. Uh, so these are all very influential figures on the American hard right, uh, and they testify to 
the enduring relevance of Nietzsche uh, as a right-wing thinker uh, and the consistent need for those of us on the left who are hostile to the right uh, to offer criticisms of his work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I feel like we could probably go on for another four hours, but uh, I'm aware that both of us have uh, things that need to do in. So I think people at home, you should probably go out and get this book. Uh, in the UK, it's a bit expensive because it has to be it's a, from an academic publisher. So it's a bit, uh, I've seen some go for like a hundred pounds. It's uh, yeah. Uh, it's a hundred pounds. I really strongly advise all your readers to, our listeners to uh, get it in the library. Uh, it wouldn't offend me, you know, hmm. find yeah. a way to get the book that uh, doesn't break the bank account. Yeah. I think it, it, I don't know if it's on um, like Kindle yet. So it might be some more affordable options out there, but uh, libraries, universities, things like that. Um, do, do pay for it. Don't just steal it. Um, yeah. Please don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cause it is genuinely good, genuinely good. And um yeah, I think if folks at home aren't following Matt's work, I mean, if you have anything like more than a passing interest in conservatism, the right wing, the far right, um, if if names like Richard Hanania and BAP uh, are uh, do and Dugan, for example, who really uh, glad we haven't got into because that's a spooky dude. Um, that's for sure. He is a also a Satanist, and uh, um, so. Uh, complicated but um yeah if you have an interest in this stuff follow uh matt uh, on wherever uh, twitter and uh, blue sky if you're on it and um because you are one of the best uh thinkers on the conservative movement right now you got you. My, my stamp of my guarantee on there um so folks at home buy this book but um, we're going to finish out for today with a bit of um, progressive, technical, brutal death metal. Because, <laughs> God, why not? Because conservatives surprisingly actually uh, wouldn't like m- music like this at all. Because it's, te- it, I feel it's a it's a part it's a subgenre of jazz, not of metal. But um, anyway, so there's a band uh, called Afterbirth. Which I, I know is kind of edgy name, but they're surprisingly intelligent and um, proggy and synthesizer-led. Uh, if you like stuff like um, Artificial Brain, then you'll be into them. Um, obviously, if you like Gorguts, because they kind of originated this whole weird, groovy, but also disgusting and gross-sounding death metal. Um, got an album called In But Not Of. I don't know what that means. And here's the second uh, track of that album called Devils with Dead Eyes. Uh, it's, yeah, it, you're, you're going to love or hate this. I think 99% of people hate it. That's fine. That's what we're here for. Um, yeah, it, it's gross sounding. It's just like, bleh. I, I wouldn't want to hear this on headphones. It would feel like someone licking the back of my neck. Um, but uh, stick around. Um because come back in a few weeks. Cause next week we'll be talking uh, about a book called Big Fiction. It's a book about why, basically, why modern literature is, ain't hidden like it has. Um, yeah, um, Matt, I highly recommend if you like if you like modern fiction, you should check out this book. It's really good. It's like what how um, people like Cormac McCarthy went from writing these weird Faulknerian epics to writing um post-apocalyptic stuff and now some his last book about like multiple personalities which was awful um <laughs> and it, it, it's a, a kind of materialist approach to why fiction isn't like it, it it could be or should be but that's for next week for this week, cool. it, it is really very good book um but um Matt's book is also very, very good, and all his books are. And you've got dozens. You seem to be pumping out books every year or so, which is uh, a good thing for me. Um, yeah, folks at home, keep up with Matt and read the political right inequality. But for now, you can listen to some disgusting progressive death metal from Afterbirth. Uh-huh.